If you haven't been with us, we're in Nehemiah chapter 10. What we've been talking about and trying to get, get wrapped up here this day is that whole book of Nehemiah, if you're unfamiliar with it, what happened, he's an Old Testament character. Israel had been devastated by the attacks by the Assyrians, Babylon. They've been out of their country for 70 years. At the end of the 70 years, they're allowed to go back and start rebuilding Jerusalem and that region around called Judah. And so they go back, some of the people, but they're stopped in some of their building progress. They get the temple built, but the rest of the city is kind of in rubble and rubbish. So what happens is Nehemiah comes on the scene and he is working for the king in Susa and he wants to help his homeland. He asks permission to go back and spend several years there, ends up being 12, that he goes back there and tries to lead the rebuilding program. So chapter 1 and 2 is all about that background story, getting him there. He gets there, he rallies the people to say, let's get the walls built. Without the walls, we're not going to be able to protect ourselves. We're not going to be able to establish again pilgrimages to people with safety and protection. So the people start rebuilding chapter 4, 5, 6. There's a lot of opposition. Chapter 7, they get the task done, but now they have to do other things like repopulate the city. But before they start with that, they have to take some time. Nehemiah realizes they need to do some Bible reading. They haven't had it for a long time. The people confess their sin. In chapter 10, they make a new covenant with the Lord. It's, it's one-sided. It's their commitment to the Lord. And they vow certain things. Now chapter 10 is where we left off. I'm going to run through this quickly this morning. What they do is they sign this document. And there's 84 different signatures that are listed. Plus there's a number of other people that do sign it. And it makes it clear in chapter 10. Look at verse 28. It says that they fully understood what they were doing. They make this commitment. They make this promise. And it's not like they don't understand what they're committing to do. And in this document in chapter 10, listing it out, there are several things they promise to do. They promise, number one, verse 29, we will follow your word. That's the first thing. Now that's a very generic, that's a very general concept. But they're saying we will do what the law has told us to do. Then the next section, verse 30, is they make a second promise. Because it's been an issue, they make this promise, we will avoid mixed marriages in the future. That was a command in the Old Testament, to stay away from marrying the Gentiles. But over the period of time that they've lived there and lived out of the country, they've been doing a lot of intermarriage. And so now they make a commitment, we will train our kids, we will stop this intermarriaging, we will try to keep our uh, culture and our religious uh, distinction. Then they promise, starting with verse 31, they make a promise about the Sabbath days. They make the commitment where it says, and if the people of the land bring the victuals and the wear on the Sabbath day, if the merchandisers come, we will not buy them on the Sabbath or on the holy day. And what they're basically saying is we're going to start a new practice. The Old Testament told us to do this, but we haven't done it. We're going to start making sure one day out of seven, no business. One out of seven years, we're going to keep the ground fallow. And again, I remind you, the reason they were out 70 years is they didn't keep 70 of the different jubilee years. And so God kept them out of the country to get that land the rest that it was supposed to have. Then they make another promise. Now verses 32 down to verse 39, here's their promise. We're going to support the temple. Now what they've got going is this religious system. The temple is operating. They are just assigning the priest. That was chapter 7. Then Nehemiah says, okay, we got to go through the genealogical records and figure out which Levites are genuine Levites, which are real priests, and which have pure blood as far as the uh, generations and genealogy. And so he started setting up the system, getting it functional and operating once again. And so he's asking the people, and the people respond, we're going to support the temple. They do it in several ways. As you go
go through this section, what they do is we're going to start paying a temple tax. This is the same tax that in the New Testament, the shekel that was required according to the Old Testament that Jesus and Peter paid. And Jesus said to Peter, go down to the uh, seaside and catch a fish and you'll find two coins in its mouth. So they Jews on an annual basis, according to the Old Testament, they were supposed to pay half a shekel. And that was due for everyone, all the different peoples through the course of the year that they were supposed to pay this and pay it at a one-time uh, situation. Now in Ezekiel, it says one-third, I'm sorry, in Nehemiah, he says one-third of a shekel, where in Exodus, it calls for a half of a shekel. What was the difference? And that some will jump on this and say, see, once again, we got a contradiction in the Bible. We've got a mis we got somebody, uh, you know, committing, and so th th you can't rely on Nehemiah. There's contradictions here. If you remember, okay, that back in Exodus, this was supposed to be done originally. It was done only when a census was taken, not annually, but by the time of Christ, the Pharisees regulated it to become annual. So originally it was whenever there was a census taken. So here they are. Now they're in that time period where they're starting to say, we will do it annually. And so did they modify the amount based upon now we're paying annual? That's a possibility. The other possibility is that what happens here is that the Persian shekel was different than the Jewish shekel and there's different monetary values. Same terms, but while they were in Persia, we have indication historically that the value of the shekel changed. And so they're modifying it based on the value compared to what was in the Old Testament in Exodus, which is monetarily possible from the records that we have, that they are paying the same amount equivalent because of the change in the coinage system that took place while they were out of, uh, out of the area. So what happens is they say we're going to take these funds, we're going to collect them, and they're starting this practice because it started to happen and started right uh, later uh, in, the, uh, in the dispersion. We're going to start paying this when we get back in the land. And so they're starting to pay this annual fee, this annual tax, and so they commit to say we're going to do that. This doesn't seem like much to you and me, but they also commit we're going to gather firewood for the temple. What would you use firewood for? Okay, all the sacrifices. Especially you have the brazen altar that's supposed to be burning all the time. And so they agree that we will collect the wood. And so this was part of in the past, a part of the group effort, you bring wood, you, bring, you collect it, and so somebody's got to do it. And so these people commit, they say, we will make sure, and it's more of the idea, we're going to keep the fires burning. We're going to make sure that we're ready to sacrifice at any time and at all times. And so it's a, it's a commitment that doesn't seem like much to you and me, and yet at the same time, it's a big commitment to these people at this time, and you and I can take a simple lesson that even from that factor of making physical contributions at times. Big effort. Big effort to just help and to keep things going and to, you know, to just take care of the little things. And so they make this commitment and it's a tremendous commitment on their part. Then they make another commitment. We're going to bring, and here's what you were probably thinking would be the only commitment, offerings and tithes. Okay, that's something that's Old Testament that they were told. But this time, okay, there's, they're going to spell it out in verses 37, 38, and 39. The Levites will collect this tax, this temple offering. Then they will be able to take some of it and support themselves. And so the priestly group, they're going to be supported by the tithes and offerings of the people. But then he makes it very clear that the priests also have to tithe. That they have to, out of what they get, 
that they too have to give up their tithes and offerings. Where that's a little bit different than, than what's been specified at times. And even in the New Testament, some of, some of these people will start to steer away. Now I know the Pharisees don't. The Pharisees even tithe the mint and the rue and the things out of the garden. But the Sadducees started writing and saying that they are exempt from paying tithes and offerings because they're supported by it. Well, Nehemiah didn't believe that. Okay? And neither did the Pharisees in the New Testament, neither did Jesus Christ. But the priests in, in this era were saying, no, no, if we get an income, even based on the tithes and offerings of the people, we have to tithe those of us who are part of that Old Testament clergy. And then they end up, this whole commitment in verse 39, which is an important statement, they end up saying, the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring da 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 and the porters, etc. Look at the very last phrase. We will not forsake the house of our God. This pact, this commitment had to do with the idea that they will not again get away from serving the Lord and following Him. And the bottom line is if we forget to worship, we forget God. And so they're challenging themselves and they're saying this is our commitment. We will not forget our regular worship and our duties there. And so that's how he ends up chapter 10. Now what bounces into chapter 11 is a whole nother section. But let me make some comments first of all. Okay. Now in this section we saw Nehemiah was one of the first to sign his name to the commitment. Our point is this. Those who make a difference like Nehemiah, they have to set an example of personal commitment. I think this, I think even from this text and elsewhere, it is profitable right, to write down our spiritual commitments. When we say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to promise the Lord that 1918, uh, 2018, I am going to write it down. Writing it down keeps us, keeps us answerable to ourselves before the Lord. And it helps us to formulate other than we make statements sometimes, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love God more. How does that look? How is that going to play out in your life? Uh, what, in what sense during 2018 are you going to serve the Lord more? And have specific details, writing them down is challenging and it is to keep ourselves even accountable and to be practical in our service. Although we do not make decisions decisions for show. Uh, this idea of signing this and making this public oath. We should not be afraid to let others know of our determination to serve the Lord. So that again, we have answerability, accountability, encouragement from others. Let's make another statement. Although we worship differently, we too need to realize the importance of making financial and physical contributions to our worship center. Little things like this. Okay, little things like the Geisinger's coming in and decorating. Do you like the Christmas decorations? Don't say no. They're sitting right here. Okay. <laughs> That, that helps us. The guys who came in on Thanksgiving weekend to work out at the sign, to get things ready out there, those physical projects, they are important for us. The people coming in and doing some extra cleaning to help keep the nurseries clean. Uh, people's coming in, taking care of bulletins. Uh, that's an important aspect that sometimes we underestimate, those physical contributions. The ushers keeping you know, an eye on things around the building during the worship center, uh, worship time. The idea of getting those, getting those, those uh, handicapped things out there and getting them put away again before the end of the service. Those physical contributions are very important as well as the tithes and offerings. And we ought not to underestimate that, that we can make somebody, we were just talking about in staff meeting this morning, somebody took the tracks home for Christmas and are stamping the tracks that we can have them for the Christmas cards and things that you distribute. Those are little uh, projects, but they're huge in time and they make a big, big difference. Let's make another comment. Characteristic of revival always includes this, a desire and exposure to the Word of God. 
That's what happened in chapter 8. Okay, chapter 9, a repentance, a confession of sin. Okay, admitting it. A commitment to obedience, to take some act, to make some type of change in your life to do more for the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are characteristics, even if it requires a lot of changes, even if it affects all areas of our life, which it did. This pact affects their family, their finances, their worship, every area of their life. Now, what happens in chapter 11? We already touched on this, okay, a few weeks back. Chapter 7 and 11 go together. However, they're broken up because in chapter 7, he's talking about let's get the city repopulated. They've finished the project, but they've got to get people to live in the city. Nobody wanted to at this point. And so they get Jerusalem back up and running to become a religious center. They've got to have people there. They've got to have security, but they don't have much for housing inside the walls, and they don't have much of a commerce. They don't have much as far as food supply, and uh, so Nehemiah starts working in chapter 7 of saying, okay, who's going to move into the city? We've got to get it up and running. And in chapter 7, he's starting to figure out who's going to move in, and he talks about the priest. Once he starts talking about the priest, which is obvious, they, he's got to have a good, good amount of priests living there if they're going to get the temple going. And so once he starts talking about the priests, he starts talking about the festivals, the feast days, how all of a sudden that took off, and that took up chapters 8, 9, and 10. Now chapter 11, he returns to the same project, getting the city repopulated, getting people there. And so a lot of people don't want to live in this city. We already mentioned some of the reasons. According to chapter 7, they don't have many houses there. The region, a lot of these people who were there already had built homes outside into the countryside. And so they would have to leave their regular homes to move into the city. Obviously, the cost of living is higher. They've been threatened by outsiders who keep on saying, we're going to attack you. That's Sam Ballot, Tobiah, and the others. There's a lot of garbage around the city, just like urban cities that are in decay here in the United States. They had a lot of it there. And so the safety concerns, all these different, these different factors proved to be a point that a lot of people didn't want to move in the city. So chapter 11, Nehemiah, who is the Tershatha, that's chapter 11. Look at the term that's used for him several times. It is the word for governor. It's a Persian term. And so he's the governor. He could order a lot of people to move in the city. He doesn't do it. Look what he does in chapter 11, starting with verse 1. The rulers of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in the city. And then verse 2, the people blessed the men that willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. So you get a, you, he gets a method going where what he's, number one, what he does is he's going to not order them, but he's going to get volunteers. And a number of the people volunteer to move in the city. They have a mind to work. They have a mind to rebuild their culture. So they move into the city. What they do with their homes out in the countryside, I don't know, and you don't either. So what they do is they move in for a short time, long time, we don't know. But then he d does a lottery system that one out of ten, according to what we've read already in Josephus, this gets, uh, gets a good amount of people that move in. Josephus says they're able through doing the system to get up to 100,000 people to eventually move into the city, which is going to help the city to uh, prosper and to move forward. Then in chapter 11, the bulk of the chapter is listing names. Look through it. You start getting all the different names of the different people, and if I read them, I'm going to mispronounce them, and you'll just giggle. But if you look in verses 4, 5, 6, 7, and it's just a whole list of names, plus he also lists at times what they did. The porters who moved into the city. The gatekeepers, in other words. Those who took care of the temple property. That is the Nephanim, 
that's the term he'll use, those who were the custodians, those who took care of the lawn or the building or inside and outside the temple. He's going to talk about those who contributed by bringing food into the city. And so he expands. In chapter 11, he's listing all the people who made specific contributions to help to get the city up and running. And so he lists these people out. There's lots of different folk. He's even going to talk about some 822 different peoples who... Um, who worked in the temple. He gives the big number. And he talks about how all these people, and some of them are on that rotating basis that David had already established several generations ago. He's going to talk about those who worked in prayer. Verse 17. He says, here's a fellow who made great contribution. He talks about Madaniah, and he goes on, he says, was the principal to begin Thanksgiving and prayer. This guy was praying us through the project. These people were working in the temple. These people served as guards. These people were singers for our services. These people were the king's emissaries. They made sure that we had protection and safety. And he goes on, he mentions in chapter 20, verse 25, he gives a list of people who lived in the villages. And he's making comment that these people contributed to the, re re the revival of the city because they stayed in the village. Well, how is that possible? How do the people living outside of town rebuild Jerusalem? Okay, what's that? They bring, they bring commerce, they bring food. They, you know, so the, there's only so much firewood, right? They got to get, these people are contributing all these things. They're making practical applications. And so their, their contributions are food and supplies. And they needed those people. It, it, it goes like that old saying, okay? When we talk military and we talk about our veterans, for instance, and we honor them, we obviously think about the frontline people, but do they need the behind the scenes people in order to do frontline work? It's absolute. It's absolute that they need the people to provide this, you know, the, the soldier fighting, does he need somebody to be cooking for him? Yeah. Does he need somebody to be medical supplies for him? Yes. Transportation. What about making the ammunitions? Okay, so you have these people contributing in that way. And what I find interesting is Nehemiah recognizes this. Nehemiah recognizes the people behind the scenes that you and I think is, you know, and I'm going to use the term and I say it, you know, not disrespectfully, but the nobodies, the individuals who aren't noticed, the individuals who basically, they are not the upfront people, that the world would say they're nobodies, but you and I, from a biblical point of view, we say they, they make great contributions. They are a tremendous impact. Those people were appointed to live outside of Jerusalem by the lottery system, which I think is a fascinating concept. Okay? You and I would think that for the Jewish mindset that everyone would want to live in the city and it would be God's will for all of them to live in Jerusalem. But the very fact that God only took one out of ten proves it's not his will that everybody lived in the city, but some lived outside the city. Is there a principle that we should jump on, on at this moment? I think absolutely yes. Is everybody designed to do the same service for God? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We don't all have to sing in the choir to be serving the Lord. We don't all have to teach a Sunday school class to serve the Lord. We don't all have to be an usher to serve the Lord. But do we need those people? 
to fill in those gaps. And some of you are cowering right now. Those of you who work in the nursery don't want me to say not everybody has to work in the nursery because you need nursery workers. Okay? Choir people. Oh, no, no, don't say that because people will... And I understand we need people to serve in those capacities. We need more people to serve ushers, nursery, choir. We need that. That enhances the service. But at the same time, do we have to be honest to say, if you love the Lord, you can serve in multiple different facets? Yes, no. Because is it easy to have a mindset that unless somebody serves the Lord where I think I am serving they don't love God as much as I do. That often happens in churches, does it not? That everybody has to do what I'm doing or they don't love the Lord as much as I do. Does that become a problem in scriptures? Did the disciples ever have to be rebuked for that mentality? Yes, no. Yeah, remember they saw the man who was casting out demons? And they said, because he's not one of us, we did what? We stopped him. Do you remember a woman who got really upset because she was trying to make the Thanksgiving dinner and her sister bailed on her? Right? And she was serving God by doing all the cooking. And she got really mad at her sister and then she directs it at who? At the Lord himself. Don't you care? Because her mindset is if you're serving the way I'm serving, you're going to work where? In the kitchen, okay? Well, Nehemiah is wise, just a tremendously wise individual, okay? He recognizes that multiple people can make multiple contributions. Now, the, the, the issue is here. Let me just pause, okay, to try to put at ease, okay? The issue isn't just saying, okay, I don't have to serve in the same capacity, therefore I don't have to serve. Now, that's where the error is, Okay? We are all supposed to serve and contribute. We don't have to contribute in the same way, but we're supposed to be contributing to the Lord's work. And so Nehemiah recognizes that there's different gifts, different talents, and different individuals. And not everyone was required to live in the city of God, that city that they would call the holy city. Yeah, and yet those individuals were important to God and to Nehemiah. That's chapter 11. Chapter 11 is filled with this idea. Now, let me point out a couple things. As you go through, you're going to notice something if you read it through. Verse 9, he makes a comment that there are a group of people from the tribe of Benjamin. There's also somebody from the tribe of Judah. And if you go through and you compare genealogical names to Ezra and elsewhere, you're going to find out that the bulk of the people that have moved back at this time are from these two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. What he does in chapter 9, or I keep on saying chapter, verse, 11, verse 9, is he puts two men in charge, calls them princes. One is from the tribe of Judah, one is from the tribe of Benjamin. Is there any brilliance in having co-leaders? Yes, no? Oh, absolutely. Because what is, a, what is an, oh, a frequent problem with tribal mentality? Is there jealousies of which tribe gets recognized? I shouldn't even say tribal mentality. Is there an innate thing that our group is overlooked? It happened in the New Testament church. The New Testament church, the reason they got deacons was because some thought their widows weren't being treated as well as another ethnic group of widows. 
And so this ethnicity within, the, within that, that group there by the tribe, what he does is he appoints two different fellas who are going to work hand in hand and they're representing the two different tribes. And so here he is, wise diplomatic move. He's not elevating one group above another. He also, verses 22 and 23, look down. He talks about the king gave money. Now this is, an, this is an, uh, a, a Gentile king who's contributed to the building project. And he mentions it and he brings it up that they have also contributed to the work and in his letter of running the credits, in his, you know, this is like a movie thing where you're giving all the credits who contributed, giving acknowledgement, that's chapter 11. And as he's going through he says, the king gave us some monies. Okay, and as he makes comment about it, he mentions that they had given this funds and they helped cover the cost of even the worship service and the reestablishment. Okay, now you and I have to ask this question. Why would a pagan king contribute to the worshiping done by the Jews? Well, number one, let's go back. Were, was the king and, and Nehemiah, were they somewhat tight? Yeah, they were. And so he's got a vested interest in Nehemiah. As well, if they have, if they were tight like that, is there a possibility that this king has heard about Jehovah God? Very good possibility. We don't know any more than that, but that's, he's heard. The king, according to other scriptures in Ezra, the king contributed so that there would be prayers made for his government, his children, his heirs. And so he made contributions with the idea that don't forget me when you are worshiping to pray to your God and ask him. Now, you might, whether or not you like this idea, does this still happen today that people make contributions and say, remember us? Yeah, it does. And so what happens is Nehemiah, in this whole point, Nehemiah remembers the king. Nehemiah is saying, okay, we're going to, out of generosity, we're going to keep the king in mind and we appreciate what he's done. So he lists out what he does and he makes comment about him. So Nehemiah continues in chapter 12 listing out names. Chapter 12, verse 1 through 26 is a listing of the people who contributed, all these people who made a big difference, but he's going back a hundred years. He's going back into these people came a hundred years ago. These were coming under Zerubbabel and he mentions a lot of them by name. So as you're reading through, understand that there's a break in here. That he's doing contemporary names, chapter 11. Chapter 12 is a hundred years ago. And he's listing off these people. And he's saying they contributed to our ministry years and years and years ago and we're building on their shoulders. And so Nehemiah makes comment about that. There's so many things we could talk about. Just, just make some applications here. Good leaders recognize this. They need others. Those who make a difference realize they are not an island, they are not doing God's work alone, but they need help. Those who are good husbands, good fathers, they realize they need the help of their spouse to help raise the kids, to provide the leadership that's needed. Those who are good in, in Christian businessmen, they realize that they need others to help contribute. Good leaders know how to get people to volunteer by example, by incentives, by orderliness. Good leaders realize not everyone needs to serve and be involved in the exact same thing for the Lord Jesus Christ. That they can do, use a variety of different gifts and talents. They know the art of appreciation. Individuals in the family unit, leaders at home have developed the skill of appreciation. Not criticism first and foremost, but commendation. Not to the neglect of, of where there needs to be a, a challenge or a confrontation. I'm not saying that. But at the same time, they know how to express appreciation. The, the, the husband, uh, 
knows how to express appreciation, to be able to have the confidence and the trust even of his wife as it builds as the years goes by. With your kids, with your workers, your co-workers, some of you are in business, you're in management position. The art of appreciation is critical. To say thank you, to acknowledge contribution by other peoples, to take the time and to comment on what they have done, to know the little contributions, to be aware, to see that this person, they offered, they did this task, and to notice the little things. Noticing little things is huge with people. And so the art of appreciation seems to be a lost art because more and more we don't look for appreciating others. What in our culture have we trained ourselves to do? Instead of looking to appreciate, we look for the recognition ourselves, And if we don't get recognized, we get bent out of shape. And forget, wait a minute, the, the way to do this is you reap what you sow. If I give the recognition, if I acknowledge it, biblical principle is, it'll come back to me in time. But my goal isn't to say, okay, let me be noticed. My goal is to honor others and to lift them up. Learn to appreciate. To learn to appreciate. Here's some thoughts for you. The social contributions that people make to keep us safe. That's what Nehemiah is doing. He's talking about the porters. He's talking about the guards. He also recognizes the spiritual contributions, the prayer warriors. He also recognizes the physical contributions, the individuals who clean up the temple, who keep it or neat and proper so that, you know, the dust bunnies don't take over the temple proper. And so he is an individual who recognizes all aspects. We shouldn't get so spiritually minded that we only recognize the spiritual contributions. All these others are very impacting as well. Learn to appreciate even those who serve in the unseen jobs, the jobs that nobody notices. But all of a sudden, like the ushers, the doorkeepers, the maintenance workers, the guards, the singers, it is easy to, sit, to just not acknowledge them, to just kind of overlook them and to take them for granted. Okay, and so here he is, this guy who is the governor, who's got his hands full, but he's appreciating people around him. He's making commendation. He's writing down their personal contributions. Tremendous. Now, if you, I, fall into the category of the nobodies, Here's lessons out of this chapter for us. Don't strive for fame. That wasn't what they were after. They weren't after fame. They were just trying to be faithful. As well, focus on, on what you can do. Don't focus on, I can't do this. I wish I could do this. Well, I can't do that. Therefore, I won't do anything. Don't approach life that way. Don't approach service for the Lord that way. That just because you don't have the ability to do what somebody else doesn't mean you don't have ability. God has gifted you. Use those gifts. Whether your contribution is big or small, it is important. Important enough that it gets recognized by good leaders and by God who had it, reveal, had it recorded, the most noble things you will do. Here's a life, life lesson. The most noble things we'll do will probably not go noticed by people around us. But at the same time, you know, the noble thing, you're going to go here you, this weekend, the noble task that you decided to do, we're going to go visit some shut-ins. We're going to go visit some people who are widowed. We're going to go see somebody who's, you know, in a rest home. That's a noble deed. According to James chapter 1, verse 27, that is where real religion starts. It's noble in God's eyes to go visit widows. And you say, I'm going to do this noble deed. Nobody's going to notice. 
Nobody as the group is going to say, oh, you did that unless you broadcast it. And you're not going to do that if you're doing it nobly for the Lord and for His glory. And so you go and do that. And you say, but nobody notices. Nobody, you know, the, the, you know they, they, they don't see my real generous spirit, how I took an hour this week and visited somebody who was a shut-in. But who does see it? People won't recognize it, but who does? The Lord. The Lord Himself. All noble deeds will be recognized by God. God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. So even those things that seem to be so... You make a meal for somebody who's sick. Nobody knows you made the meal. It's not publicized. You're not doing it that way. You went out of your way to help, your, to help some Christian neighbor or a Christian you know, worshiper or neighbor to just go and, hey, they, they have, a, they have you know, leaves that look like the ocean. They're so big and they're waving through their yard. And you go over there and you give a hand. Nobody sees it, but God does. But God does. And those noble deeds, God says, I'll reward. I think that's part of the crowns that he gives us based on noble deeds done in quiet, done in secret, done without looking for popularity and prestige. Well, chapter 12 picks up now the rest of chapter 12. We went up to where he's listing all the people. And chapter 12, if you jump down into it, you pick up in verse 27, they have a dedication service. I preached from this on Wednesday night, so I'm not going to review it uh, or go over it anymore. But what they did is they hold a, a, a dedication service for the thanksgiving to what God has done. And so they have the singing, they have the people. It says in verse 42, 43, that noise was heard afar. It's a tremendous celebration. They had the kids involved, like we try to just demonstrate on Wednesday night with the kids getting involved. They made great sacrifices. The theme of this whole text and passage is all this. Gladness, thanksgiving, giving thanks. Oh, time and time again, look at the words that show up. In verse 43, five times, joy or rejoicing shows up. And so they have this tremendous celebration, getting excited over what God has done. And so they, they lead this, this whole parade and Nehemiah wants to make sure then at the end of it the people are giving money. They're out of joy. They start giving sacrifices to the temple. And so he appoints a couple people to be in charge of it and to take care of it and to watch over it. So he appoints you know, people who are of good character to watch over this money. So just just conclude. This is where after we did Wednesday night, we made some of this application. Take time to enjoy and rejoice what God has done. Even if there's lots to do, let's get involved with Thanksgiving service. Everyone got involved, not just the professionals. They got the entire congregation involved. And um, my thought that I pulled out of the text that I tried to apply Wednesday night was they had the kids involved that we keep the kids engaged in thanksgiving and in worship so that the kids are involved. We were, we were talking about this this past week with somebody here um, about the aspect of children in, in worship services. And I was relaying how my pet peeve is going to different churches and seeing how the kids are ignored in the worship service. Things are done that don't take kids into account. And, and you've heard this before, but to me it's very important. It's, you, a lot of churches are doing what we're doing, gone to the screen. They stand during the worship service, and no kid can see through the adult to even see the screen. So in, in these churches that we visited, very frequently the kids have books, they have their iPads, they're tuned out to the worship service because they can't physically in, be involved. You are, and, then, and in some of those services, it's all designed that you stand through the whole song service. 
So you have four or five songs, and you're all doing the screen, and it's trying because, you know, the concept of the concerts, and that's the way it's usually done. So people stand and they sing, but the little kids can't, get, they can't even see anything. So I understand where parents would say, well, they can't be involved. Let's give them a coloring book. Let's give them something. What does that train their mind to think when it comes to worship? To not, it's not important. Then when they reach those preteen years, do they care? You know, so me, my pet peeve, and you'll see at times, I, you know, if, the, if we have kids in the auditorium, we don't stand. We don't stand during those song services when the kids are here, those songs. And you'll see if, uh, if, if, song, if the worship or uh, the song leader decides to stand and the kids, I'm going to, okay. Because in my mind, it is important we keep the kids engaged. If we don't keep the kids engaged in worship, we lose them. And so, the Nehemiah, Nehemiah did, had that principle in mind, okay, where he uses, they all got involved, never underestimate the impact of music, and yet at the same time he sets up firewalls. Now, here's where we get to the last chapter, which gets really, really difficult to understand unless you write something in. Chapters 12 ends. Chapter 13 is a number of years later. You have a big gap of time. Is it one year, two years, ten years? We don't know. Okay, but there's a huge gap of time. What happens in chapter 12? He leaves on a high note. He leaves Jerusalem. They've rebuilt. They've resettled the city, and he's moving out. And he goes back to Susa. Remember, he had told the king, I will return at such and such a time, chapter 1. And so he goes back and resumes his job, apparently, back at Susa as the cupbearer. And a number of years go by. And he comes back, and again, we know he was governor for 12 years after they, with the rebuilding of the walls and leading all that. There was, that was a 12-year stint. At the end of the 12 years, he leaves, he goes back to Susa. How many years till he returns? I don't know. But he comes back. And when he comes back, what's he find? Anybody remember chapter 13? Is everything... At a highlight, he left with thanksgiving. He left with people giving praise, people giving monetary gifts. They had their sacrificial Sunday, and they had to appoint extra people in charge of the finances. Everything was really good. He comes back several years later, and everything is really not too good. That's a really nice way of putting it. Okay, everything stinks. Okay, he comes back, and guess what? Remember, they said we will never remarry, uh, we'll never have mixed marriages. Guess what happens when he comes back? Mixed marriages. We're, we're going to continue to give to the temple. When he comes back, guess what? There, there's no tithe, the tithing and offering has gone out the window. When he comes back, they were going to be a separate people, they were going to keep their treaties. They come, he comes back. And you've got Gentiles living in the temple. Actually living in the temple proper. Yeah, and so he comes back to a real mess. And it says in the passage, you may not like this concept, but it says in the passage he gets so upset. Alice, I'm not going to do this, to what he did. He grabs the people and he whacks them. Okay. My dad used to say, give him a slap across the side of the head. Okay, one across the head, that'll wake you up. Okay, brain damage, that explains everything, okay. okay. But that's what he does. He gets so physically riled, he whacks some of the leaders. Okay, and you say, well, that, that, that's not good. But understand the context. They had made an oath. 
They had made a covenant. And by the way, the oath said, if we do not follow through, God curse us. Boom. Okay. That wasn't the curse that God was going to give you. But he's trying to get across. This is really serious stuff. And so when, they come, when he comes back, and he's going to have to challenge the people. Now, if you were Nehemiah, and you come back to this mess, why would you hesitate to challenge them? Most people would. Most people would look at it and say, uh, what, what, could be a, what could be a reason? I mean, you're dealing with somebody, a co-worker. You're dealing with a lazy, lazy, lazy co-worker. You're, you're, you're supposed to be over them. You chew them out. You get after them. They say, okay, we're going to start showing up on time. We're going to start doing the work. And you leave for a few days. You come back, and they're right back to the same thing that you've dealt with time and time and time again. What would be, in your mind, what could be a thought that would go through that says, what's the use What's the use? Everything I say is, yeah, the, the person's just a waste of skin, okay? It just doesn't work. Nehemiah comes back. He could easily say, okay, this, this isn't working. The people never followed through. He, but he directly challenges the people. I think this is admirable. I think it's admirable that he even tries again, because in this case, it would be so easy to say, hey, they're doing the same things they did before. We've done this, okay? We've already been down this road. Have you ever given advice to somebody who they say, oh, please tell me, tell me, tell me, what should I do, what should I do? And you tell them. And they do the opposite. And it gets worse. And they come back to you and they say, give me some more advice. And you want to say... Yeah, why? You didn't listen in the first place. And so Nehemiah goes back and he starts down. Now here's the five big issues. They have five major problems that he has to deal with. And he deals with them. Number one problem is this. They're compromising companions. Okay, what they're doing is if you, when you start reading in chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, they've got alliances going again. They got treaties with their neighbors going again to the point that they're interacting, they're socializing high. You know, again, this is a different culture. This is a different time. That the Jews are, are real tied against with the Ammonites and the Moabites. The reason he points out the Ammonites and the Moabites, these were ancient enemies. These were the ones who tried to curse Israel in the wilderness. These are the descendants from Lot. These are the individuals that, that the Jews, as he comes back, he says, listen, let, let's get started. And he starts having the word of God read. You look in verses 13, uh, chapter 13. On the day they read the a book of Moses in the audience of the people, there it's found that the Ammonites and the Moabites aren't supposed to be a part of our worship service. But we've made them a part of our worship service. So obviously when Nehemiah gets back, they're starting to do Bible reading again. They're reading it publicly. As they read it publicly, they realize, wait a minute, this isn't what we're supposed to be doing. And so now they say, we've got to stop this. Because we're allowing the Moabites and the Ammonites to get involved in our worship services to the point that, oh, by the way, does this ever happen? We'll let somebody get involved in our worship service. The more they're involved in our worship service, eventually, if they're, a, if they're an influential person, they start 
influencing our worship service. And eventually they can become leaders in our worship service. And it all starts with saying, okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll, do you remember, let me give you the, op, the family illustration. Don't marry into the Gentile system, Jews, because eventually if you marry the Gentiles, you might say, hey, we're going to win them to the Lord this way. It usually doesn't work that way. Usually the, the Jews didn't bring the Gentiles up. It was the Gentiles brought the Jews down. Does it ever work that way today in Christendom? Okay. That, well, hey, well, listen, we'll, we'll just, we'll interact a whole lot with, with uh, those who don't believe in the Word of God. And we'll, you know, if we, if we allow that type of teaching in the schools and questioning the miracles, it, we'll persuade them in time. Usually, where's the persuasion gum? Those who don't believe in the miracles become more influential. And there's more questioning of the Word of God. And so they have that issue. They have another issue. They have an issue that Tobiah is living inside the temple. Not only are they worshiping together, but Tobiah has a temple apartment. Who's Tobiah? Anybody remember him earlier in the book? He's the, one of the leaders who tried to attack the project. He's the one who came to Nehemiah and said, meet with us in Ono, but Nehemiah realized they that they were going to do him harm. Tobiah is a bad dude. Tobiah is dangerous, but he's living in the temple proper because he's related to one of the priests. And so this Tobiah, who is an Ammonite, he is living there. He's done all these, and he's the one who read the open letters, by the way, that attacked Nehemiah. He's living in the temple. And so Nehemiah gets back and he finds out, as he, we read down in verse 7, I came, understood of the evil that Eliashib, the high priest, was doing for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And look at verse 8. It grieved me sore. Therefore, what does Nehemiah do? I threw out all of his stuff. And he says, I commanded, and they, what do they do to the temple proper? <laughs> they get, you know, you know, they get Hilex, and they clean it, clean it, clean it. Why? Because he had cooties. Spiritually, that's true. Okay? That he says, okay, he's, and he's very upset. He's upset because of who this guy is, because of what this guy has done, where he's at. The high priest has, has allowed him in, and he cleanses the temple. And he says, this, this has got to stop. And Nehemiah is physically engaged in saying, stop this. Stop it. This is wrong. Then he has another problem he has to deal with. There's a financial fiasco. You have in verses 10 through 14, you have the people that they aren't giving like they were supposed to. I perceive that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. For the Levites and the singers that did the work, they went everyone to their own fields. What's he saying? They had to take up their, their jobs because the people weren't supporting them. And so Nehemiah gets the leaders together and says, what in the world are you guys doing? I content, then contended I with the rulers and said, why have you forsaken the house of God? Wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. Look at verse 11 of chapter 13. Look at the end of verse 20, 39 in chapter 10. In chapter 10, verse 39, the covenant that they had signed, we will not what? Chapter 10, verse, uh, verse 39, the last verse. 
we will not forsake what? The house of, God, of our God. Chapter 13, verse 11, why is the house of God forsaken? And so he challenges them. No wonder he's upset. These are the guys who signed the covenant, and they aren't keeping their deal. And he says, come on, you gotta, you got to set the example here. And he says, we got to start giving the way we're supposed to. And then he ends up, after he confronts them, verse 14, remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, wipe not out my good deeds. Okay? Because I'm upset, I'm angry, I'm trying to deal with it, and he's challenging them. Then they have this secularized Sabbath. What they have done is they're doing businesses on Sundays again. You understand why. You know that they were struggling financially. It would have taken great trust. Well, they're away from the Lord. So now they're thinking we can do better by keeping business open on the Sabbath day. And so they run it. And so what he does is he closes the gate. He gets out there and he chases the merchants away who come on Sundays. Or on the Sabbath, excuse me. I said Sunday, I meant Sabbath. He's, he's saying, you can't be here. Get away and I'm going to have my guards. And he prays once again. He prays, he says, get out of here. Then here's the big issue. Daddy wraps up the chapter that they have intermarriage going on. He says in verse 23, in those days also sighed Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, Amnon, Moab. Now look at verse 24. This is how serious it's gotten. Their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jewish language but according to the language of these other people. Why is it that the kids couldn't speak Hebrew in just a matter of a short time? Okay. It's not spoken at home. Who would train the kids at home mostly? And the moms from another country, she's speaking in her native tongue. The Jewish kids lost their ability to understand Hebrew. If they lost the ability to understand the Hebrew, they would, understand, they would lose the ability to understand what important document. The Bible, the, the, what they had. And so he's basically, he has a challenge. And he says this is even true of the high priest's grandson. That, he's, that he doesn't, he's so upset, verse 25, that he says, you got to stop this intermarriage, you got to, I contended with them, verse 25, I cursed them, I smote certain of them, I plucked off their hair, and I made them swear by God, you will not give your daughters, I mean, we had, we had a principal, his name was Ira T. Barron, he was 12 foot tall, okay, and about that wide, he would grab you by the hair right here, and he would pick you up so you were on your tippy toes at the very best, and he'd walk you down the hallway. Now, if he were alive and functioning in a school today, he'd be in jail. But back in those days, that was acceptable. And he was, he was you know, everybody listened to, I mean, listened to his name, Ira T. Barron, okay? Just the name, and everybody was, was afeard of him, okay? And, Nehemiah takes that position that he says, guys, you better get this. And he's grabbing by the nape of the neck and he's saying, get this right. This is serious stuff. That's, that's his whole point. This is so serious, you got to change these things. I mean, and the point is that this was sin against God. This is lying to what you had promised. Here's the bottom line of what we have with Nehemiah. Those who make a difference, they're not blind to the problems. They address them. They don't say, oh, well, you know, I don't want to challenge my friends. They may not like me. There's somebody higher than your friend. It's God. You do what's right. You, you hold to what is right, to principles. You challenge those standards based on the Word of God. You challenge others. You contend with others to live by those standards. You follow them yourself. And when you see them violated, you go and say, God, help me. 
Let's get this thing right. Nehemiah, outstanding character. Just tremendous guy. Tremendously used by God. What happens after this? Well, there's the silent years. Jesus Christ comes on the scene 400 years later, and he does his ministry.